Welcome to The Secret Life of Dietitians. I'm Laura Poland. And I'm Amy Keller. In October, we are observing something called World Food Day. Um, and if you're not familiar with what food, World Food Day is, it is an international day celebrated every year worldwide on the 16th of October to commemorate the date of the founding of the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization that started back in 1945. As we were researching this podcast today, we also discovered that just a few days after is something called Global Dignity Day, which, again, I think that the uh, idea of Global Dignity Day is to ensure the dignity of every single person uh, and essential to combating intolerance, injustice, and equality uh, through several education and initiatives. We really wanted to take a serious look at both of these issues today, and we could think of no better dietitian to talk to than Clancy Harrison. And if you are not familiar with her work, she's fantastic. <laughs> the Food Dignity podcast is worth your subscription. Yeah, Absolutely. Click subscribe on her podcast when you're done. Laura's been a guest on that podcast. So we look forward to talking to Clancy here today. so much for having me. It's certainly an honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you. I remember listening to your TED Talk too. So if any, we'll put the link to your TED Talk mm -hmm. and your podcast on our show notes. Uh, so, thank you. so Clancy, we thought it might be just best to have you introduce yourself and tell sure. us a little bit about you and your journey. Sure. I mean, I, I'm a talker, so I could go <laughs> for a long time. So you might have to cut me off. But okay. uh, my name's Clancy. I'm in Northeastern Pennsylvania. I'm a dietitian, hunger fighter. I call myself a recovering food elitist. And I really, you know, I'm a food snob and I, I work on not projecting <laughs> uh, my lived experience of what is available to me onto other people. I ran a food pantry for 12 years. So during COVID, we actually served 3 million meals in the form of groceries. We went from 150 people at each distribution to over 2,000. So, you know, we've been bit, we've been really busy the last year and a half, but that food pantry, you know, really taught me a lot in the sense of where my misconceptions were, what does hunger look like? You know, I had all these different ideas. And every day I walked into that food pantry, I said, where, what's my lesson today? How am I going to learn? And then how do I adapt that? And so that's really the core of our food dignity movement is how do we really set our expertise aside if, you know, I'm a registered dietitian. So how do I park that master's degree in another room and really get to know the people that I'm working with? And for me, that's a really dignified response. And with that becomes intelligence. You know, we can have a lot of knowledge, but unless we really understand someone, we're not going to be able to help them. So that's really my mission in my, in my work with our team and how we move forward. But yeah. Hopefully that gives you a little insight. For fun, I have two kids and I have a, a very, very needy dog. <laughs> so what inspired you to start the food pantry? It's an awfully big jump. You know, what were you doing as a dietitian beforehand and what made you think this is what I need to be doing? Yeah, sure. So I, I didn't start the food pantry. The food pantry has been around since 1983. I just became the president. They They could not fill that role. Prior to that, I worked for Aramark for seven years as a food service director in the school systems, and I was in Ohio, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. I worked in Asbury Park, 
So we know, you know, I was really working where I was surrounded by poverty, new work, you name it. And after that job, I had, I worked for Penn State Cooperative Extension for a little bit and I was trying to start my private practice. I was received, I got my master's degree and then I got married and pregnant and I ended up quitting, tried my own private practice and I just wasn't successful. I don't know why. Like it was really hard to do the billing. Hopefully that all changed. I mean, we're going back like 15 years ago. And I can attest I, it's getting better. It yes. It was that's terrible. Good. It was terrible. You are right. <laughs> that, that's good to hear. Um so I ended up blogging, right? In 2009 my my daughter was born and I started blogging about making homemade baby food and I ended up kale's normal for me to eat. Like when I moved up here from North Carolina and I saw kale being used as a garnish, I was just like, what the heck? Like you eat that. It's not a garnish. And then it became like a superfood, right? Mm -hmm. And so it was normal for me to make a homemade baby food with kale. But for everyone else, it was, you know, trendy. It's a superfood. And so this blog post pretty much blew up. And I ended up getting a book deal. And I wrote a book called Feeding Baby, but it really came from an elitist mindset. Like I put certain foods on a pedestal, created fear and shame around other foods, definitely projected my lived experience and exactly what I was doing with my child. And if you look back at that book, why it was very evidence-based with responsive feeding and introducing foods to infants, it was probably meant for 1% of the entire population, right? Because it was such a privilege to talk about eating free range, local, organic yeah. uh, foods. <laughs> <laughs> and then the food pantry came. So I, I, it was a volunteer role. It was across the street from my kids' school. They're both in school full time. And I thought it was perfect. I was a food service director. I'm a dietitian. I love to help people. I'm going to jump in and just start volunteering. That's awesome. That's- I can totally relate to the projecting your lived experience onto your clients. One Mm -hmm. of my stories with that was I had a client that came to me and she's talking about the foods she's getting at the grocery store and that type of thing. And my mind, you know, just basically was okay, Kroger, you know, this is grocery store. And upon more and more information being shared and learning more information from her, I learned that actually she was talking about a local food bank that she was going to get her groceries. And so it was limited. And she was talking about how it was limited and her grocery store was limited. And so I I was digging around and then, and I realized how much I was projecting and thinking, well, you know, just you're looking for this kind of bread or that kind, you know, and, and I realized that the bread choices that I had was not the same that what she was looking for. And she made that very clear to me. And it was eye opening, because, yeah, it's not something that I always thought about. I always kind of assumed they were shopping at the same, you know, Kroger is very similar from here to there to every, you know, to me. And that's what I was expecting. (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, it's really important for us to ask the right questions and really again it goes back to not only setting maybe our degrees aside, but how do we set our lived experience aside? And yes. and when we talk about people or talk to people, how or with people is better, right? How do we talk with people? How do we really try to understand where they're coming from? What are their 
what are their barriers to food access? What are their struggles? What does success look like to them? I mean, there's so many different barriers that people might have. And if we don't have that barrier, how do we know? We don't know what we don't know, but we can find out. And that's by having dignified conversations with empathy and compassion. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is something that I experienced just a few weeks ago at work. I work in a small hospital and was dealing with an older gentleman who had some heart failure and you know, we were talking about where he was grocery shopping and I realized his closest grocery was the dollar store. So I walked to the dollar store and he was living, you know, he was not in a good living situation. And uh, I walked to the dollar store and I realized he had no, really not, not a lot of options that would be appropriate for a restricted sodium diet. There was no fresh produce of any kind. And, you know, to just tell him to go home and follow a low salt diet, <laughs> you know, and I think that that's as dietitians, we sometimes do that, right. you know, it, it may, especially in clinical where, especially inpatient clinical, where we have very little time with people. Here's your handout, you know, yeah. buy more fruits and vegetables, you know, and, and not to ask those questions about whether those are available to them. Right. I know locally there's a, a hospital system here who that are they're prescribing the local food pantries and things like that for people to go and get fruits and vegetables from them. I don't know mm-hmm. if you have that experience, Clancy, or if those types of things are happening in Pennsylvania. You can speak to that a little bit. Yeah, it you know that's actually a trending concept around our nation. Here we have Geisinger Fresh Food Pharmacy, and actually, our food pantry is a. A, a, a pilot for that. So the Geisinger doctors screen for food insecurity and diabetes. If they screen positive for both, we not only work with that patient, but their entire family. Awesome. And we make sure that they have access to food for however long until they're going to pick up food. But we also make sure that it's desirable food and, mm-hmm. and that they can actually cook it and prepare it. And they're going to eat it, you know, talking to someone do you even have teeth to bite into this apple? Right. That is a really important conversation. Do you have arthritis that's going to hurt so bad when you're cutting up your fruits and vegetables that it's going to take you two hours and then you're not going to eat it? You know, these are barriers that we're not even discussing or thinking about. And it's just really important. But so back to the fresh food pharmacy, it's really exciting to be able to work in that environment, they're also receiving healthcare coaching. And I can tell you when we first kicked this off, it was actually September, it was, it was in the January of 2020. So here we're kicking off this program and here comes COVID. Uh, it still was very successful. It's still very successful. And in the first three months, we saw one of our patients drop their A1C from a 9.5 to a 7.5. Wow. Just because we're giving them the food that they're actually going to eat, not what we think that they should be eating, right? Right. There's marriage between those two. And it's pretty exciting to see that. So yeah, that's a great, uh, those types of programs are up and coming. And it's something we should all look out for and try to support. Right. I think especially with COVID and everything, it's really shined a light on how quickly somebody can fall into food insecurity and mm-hmm. uh, having to have those screens in place and, and uh, making sure that we're paying attention to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
One thing that I hear frequently about is sort of that link between food insecurity and overweight and obesity. And and it, it doesn't make sense on the face because you would think somebody who doesn't have access to food would not struggle with their weight. But can you speak to what you you see in practice, what you see at the food bank, and, and maybe how people can be just a bit more understanding of people's yeah. situations? Sure. I think we need to start with the definition of what food insecurity is first, right? So, so yes. many times we think food insecurity is we're skipping meals and we're not eating. That's very low food security. There's another definition or category, and that's low food security. So low food security means you're getting enough food, but you're not getting the nutrients to to survive, to thrive, really. So you're not getting the fiber. You're not getting the protein, the calcium, the iron. So your belly's full, but you're malnourished on the inside. So you're getting the calories, but you're not getting those nutrients. And I always say, That if you went to college or you're in college and you're surviving on instant noodles, that's not a rite of passage. That is most likely food insecurity. Right. And until we address that definition of food insecurity, we're going to always put obesity and hunger. They don't exist. They're in two different boxes. But the truth is, is they they do, because when we decrease access to nutrient rich foods, we increase the risk of 10 chronic diseases and obesity is one of them, cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, you name it. And as the severity of that food access, you know, increases, as food insecurity increases, so does the increased risk of those chronic diseases. So they can very well live in the same box. Mm -hmm. And the other piece to that, besides the food, is the limited access to physical activity. So if someone lives in a town that doesn't have sidewalks to walk on or bike trails or playgrounds that are actually safe. We have a lot of bad playgrounds that are rusty and broken. I don't want to send my kids there. And if we're on a tight budget, am I going to be able to pay for my kid to have extracurricular activities? And so, and if I'm a mom and I'm working two jobs and my kids are sitting home after school, not getting that activity, they're staying indoors because maybe it's not a really great safe environment. So I don't want them outside unless I'm home. There's so many pieces that go into this Mm -hmm. that we really need to take a step back and start again asking the right questions and not making those assumptions but I do believe it starts with first of all understanding what the definition the full scope the full definition of food insecurity yeah right so what are some of those questions that you find help you the most now that you're you're obviously much more aware and paying attention, what kinds of things, you know, should we be asking or, or should a patient also be saying, time out, I think I need to let you know about this. (laughs) I mean, it'd be nice if we kind of get to that point. Ideally, we have an open relationship with our clients and we're able to let them feel comfortable talking to us about these things. So either how do you get them to do that? And what, what kinds of things do you recommend there? Sure. Well, first of all, I'm going to plug our Food Dignity Toolkit. It's free. So maybe I can give you the link that you can put in the show notes. And in there, we have conversation starters. And conversation starters are really not as difficult. I think we start to overthink it because we're like, oh my goodness, we're going to talk about a sensitive subject that's going to make someone embarrassed. And I don't know how to do this. So I'm not going to have that conversation. And so with our conversation starters, we really try to take a different approach. And so for me, I love to say, what is your favorite way to cook food? 
Because if someone tells me a microwave, that's going to give me a lot of information. What type of kitchen equipment do you wish that you had? Right. So now I'm asking like what they wish for, not what is negative in their life. So it's just a completely different approach to asking these questions that completely change the dynamic. Another thing that I like to do is say, especially now with COVID, it's so easy to use this. You can say, you've watched the media. We're screening everyone for food insecurity now because of COVID. We know a lot of people lost their jobs. We just have these two questions. And by the way, anyone listening, people do like to be screened in written form if they can read, but that's what they prefer versus verbal. Hmm. Um, So how do we normalize that we're doing this with everyone at every visit? Um, You can also normalize by saying, I love the can opener experience, right? So for me, my most frustrated kitchen item is a can opener. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know how many can openers I've had that don't work. The one upstairs, I just fussed with it because my son loves the, the, you know, those canned corns, the Chinese like little. Oh, yeah. The baby corn. (laughs) Yeah. He'll just open it. And eat it. And I'm not, I swear this happened this morning. I went into his room and here's this can and it's like stabbed and all these like shards are up. I'm like, oh my gosh, my son is going to cut himself, right? But if you can even have a funny story like that and talk about the frustration over a can opener, you're going to open up their frustrations in a way that's safe, relatable. Um, you're being vulnerable and transparent. And I know that everyone has issues with can openers, yeah. and, right? And yep. so if we can talk about something so simple, it's going to help someone feel, well, you know what? My stove isn't working. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's the way we approach those conversations. And I, I think we tend to overthink them yeah. when we don't really have to. I love that. I love that. So. I think we're often afraid to ask that question. Because we don't know what to do. And as dietitians, we want to fix it. Right. And when the patient says, I have a non-functional stove, well, what am I supposed to do? What? Oh, no. What? Well, I can't just send them home with that. Or do I need to talk to social workers? I mean, what, you know, it really I, I, it's, it makes you feel like, oh, gosh, I have to fix it. And that's that's a hard position when you know you probably can't. Right. And, but I also think that we have to think of something that's pretty powerful. People who are living in poverty, according to research, will are extremely, extremely resourceful. So if my stove's not working, but your wash machine is, can we swap use of appliances? Uh, and, and that's I went through a biases training with Ruby Payne, and that was so eye-opening to see all those different examples of the bartering and helping and using each other's resources. It's a way of life. It's a way of community. And it isn't our job to correct that. It is not our job to come in and fix that problem. Our job is to say, okay, well, what do you typically do if your if your stove's not working? How, what have you been doing? And they might share. Well, my sister down the hall... Mm-hmm lets me use. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. They might say, well, I've been using a microwave. And then you could say, well, okay, I have these great recipes for a microwave. How can we help you, you know, do something a little bit more creative? Or I had actually someone at the food pantry say all they had was a George Foreman grill, right? So here I'm at the food pantry, like, 
okay, what am I going to get for George Foreman Grill? But I didn't think that I had to make sure he had a working stove. Mm-hmm. It was my job to help him adapt with what he had to make it better. And and that's really our job is to start where they are. And then how do you build on that to create success that's success for them? Yeah. Yeah. You know, for us, it might be like, yeah, I need a working stove because I'm used to making my stir fry and I have my wok and I have all these things. That's your success. Right. We have to think of success um, in the eyes of the people that we're working with so we can set them up to meet, to meet those goals. Mm-hmm. I love that. So, you know, it seems like the public, you know, when we talk about what, you know, because this this podcast is not just for dietitians, it is for the lay public as well. You know, how can regular people make a difference for those who are with low food security? I know, you know, when you see food drives and you say, what is the, the maybe the number one or two things that people can do to help in this situation, these situations? Well, I think the first thing is if you had an aha from already listening to this, maybe you understand the definition of hunger. Maybe you self-identified with experiencing food insecurity in college. Start having these conversations just in your own home. Start talking about those experiences and what you learned in your aha moment, because unless we can't have those conversations within our own family unit, we're really not going to be able to have them out in public. And I also I also challenge people to really think about their assets. What are they good at? What is their what are they passionate about? And then how can you use that to fight hunger? And we have to remember that Hunger does not, hunger is not a charity problem. It's everyone's problem. We have fiscal responsibilities. If we own a business, we already talked about how healthcare rates or how uh, chronic disease increases with food insecurity. What if you own a business and you said, instead of a worksite wellness program, I might have a pop-up produce stand once a month for my employees. Now you're giving them the food that they would eat, right? So how do you start thinking about hunger in the environment that you're at, not necessarily going and volunteering at a food pantry? I love people to volunteer at a food pantry, but we also have to remember hunger is in our zip code, it's in our faith-based organizations, it's in our schools, it's in our workplace. It is around us all the time. And so how do you, if you're good at detail, maybe you can help with record keeping. Right. If you I had a guy who is an engineer and he was volunteering and he was certified in OSHA. And here he's telling me how to keep our volunteers safe by putting the pallets in front of where a car would hit the pallet before our volunteers. Right. So people have their own scope of genius. And how do you really bring that out and 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 fight hunger with what you're good at? Yeah. In Ohio, I think think our kid poverty rate is about I think it was one in four one in five and I think with COVID it's dropping down closer to one in four kids is um hung is considered hungry and food insecure so could you talk a little bit about your experience because you did say you worked in school food service and in Ohio right now, we have free school lunches for all, I believe, mm-hmm. which has been a really good thing. 
Uh, can you talk about those types of things and if you've seen any patterns there that are, are coming about that are positive and uh, anything you want to talk about? <laughs> yeah, sure. So I was a actually a food service director in Ohio, Lorraine, Ohio school district. So it was a big school district, a very high poverty area. And that's really where I started in that in that environment uh, as a food service director. I was an assistant food service director. And I have to say it is extremely important to have access to the school lunch programs. And I think one thing that we need to make sure anyone listening is I'm a product of the 80s and 70s. And so I remember in school lunch, all the kids with the red tickets would line up. Then you had the green or blue tickets and then you had the no tickets. So it was like free, reduced, paid. So you knew who was getting free lunch. You knew who was paying a little bit for lunch. You right. knew who was paying full price. And so if you're a mom like me who has a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old and you were someone with a red ticket, you might be traumatized. You might be thinking, I'm never going to sign up for school food lunch because I don't want my kid to be, have the red ticket. Right. And first, that doesn't exist anymore. So really important. And now that we have free lunch for everyone, mm -hmm. I think that is extremely important. And if you're someone who is a mom that or dad or grandparent that's listening and they're saying, oh, I'm not going to accept the free lunch, I'm going to pack um, it's not healthy, or if we if we use it, then it looks like we need it. And first of all, right there, both of those are wrong. Right. There are very high standards for school lunch programs and breakfast programs. Mm -hmm. We are providing nutrient rich foods for our kiddos, and those. And when we participate, when we all participate, we are fighting hunger because a we're normalizing the school lunch and school breakfast program. We're making everyone feel like we're part of a team. We're all eating this food and it is a community. So it. I remember when I was doing school or the summer meal sites mm -hmm. and I would take my kids around and I, you're eating lunch. Like this is where you're eating lunch. Go get in line. And it was really important that I had them sit and get that food and sit and eat. A, it was nutritious. It was free. It was yeah. free, right? Yeah. And they get to sit with these other kids and get to play and have fun. So these programs are vital to the future of our nation. It helps students behave in class. It keeps them focused. They can they can do well. They move on to the next grade. They're not sleepy. They're not acting out. Right. It's better for the teachers. So if we think about future workforce, we want our kids to be nourished because it's going to produce a population that is employable, whether they go to trade school or college or even get a job right after, but they're progressing because they're thriving. And right. I don't think we tend to look at that as a workforce development. Um, it's also a national security. We need to have healthy men and women who, if we have to go to war, that they can actually leave. They're not malnourished. They're healthy and strong. And that's actually why the National School Lunch Program was started back, I think, in 1940s or 30s, mm -hmm. 36. I'm not sure. But yeah. there's a lot. Know the history and know the purpose and, right. and understand that it brings us together. I think what happened with COVID was somewhat of a blessing. It really pushed Ohio to go yeah. to this free lunch for all. Mm -hmm. And it think it's so important. And and I don't know, is that national nationwide that they do that? I, yeah. 
<laughs> I don't listening? honestly I don't know I, don't I, I think that it is but I'm not sure I don't want to say anything wrong but it sure. should be if it's it should not be. it should be so from my experience as a dietitian I worked in this situ in that uh environment with a an alliance that we did the school meals we helped with reimbursement of of meals and things like that and what we found is like when you hit COVID and you didn't have your kids going to school to get the meals, that was a big hardship on these families. And that is so important that people don't realize is there's like other things. Yeah. There are other benefits that families can get to help pay for food with why am I blanking on the food program? You know, uh, used to be called snap, but it's, Anyway, it is, called, it is called SNAP now. Are you, yeah. Stamps? SNAP. Yeah. I was thinking it's food stamps. Now. Right. It's yeah. SNAP now. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So they're earning, they're getting money from SNAP, but what they were relying on is that their kids were in school and getting meals there. And when that got taken away, then all of a sudden that family food dollar had to cover meals that it wasn't having to cover before. And mm-hmm. so there is such a huge benefit to be able to offer that to all kids and to take that away from families, uh, it's just huge. And uh, I, I'm kind of excited that that's happening. And I think the other thing is, I, I also, this made me realize that there's a uh, action alert going on right now. The Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics puts out these action alerts. And right now there's an action alert for school lunches. Uh, it's called the School Lunch Modernization Act that they're trying to get through pa- passed through Congress. And so I'll put a link in our show notes for that as well, so that we can make sure that people who maybe you're listening to this, you can see how important school lunches are and anything we can do to help make that better uh, is beneficial. And I just want to reiterate what you were saying about their nutritious meals. You know, they're balanced meals. These are planned out by a dietitian, right? In most cases. Oh, well, yeah. (laughs) And it's a strict audit. I mean, they look at the food that's produced. They like all those production sheets and they look at the menus. I mean, they look at how much they served. I mean, it is those audits are stressful and they're looking at how much sodium, how much protein, you name it, they are calculating it. And that was the scariest day of my life every year. (laughs) (laughs) And if you don't meet it, then you lose money. You lose money for your school to be making these lunches. So it's very important. So awesome. This has been great, Clancy. I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate your expertise here. And, uh, uh, definitely we'll include some links in our, our show notes, uh, how people can find you and learn more about mm-hmm. you and your podcast. It's so important. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's certainly an honor. Thanks. We appreciate your time and we appreciate your listening. And if you have questions for Clancy, I'm sure she'd be happy to address them and we can write back to you on her behalf. You can reach us at dish at secretliferd.com. You can reach us on Instagram at the Secret Life Dietitians. You can check out our website at any time, uh, www.secretliferd.com. And we will see you next time wherever you get your podcasts.